0: Four bodies were found in barrels near Bearbrook State Park in New Hampshire. This case would take many turns until their killer was identified, uncovering possibly even more murders. It seemed every answer opened up even more questions. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines this case today is one that I covered years ago on my old podcast, but it has had some major developments since then. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this was one I considered redoing this summer here on Crimelines to incorporate the updates with the old research I had done. And then it seems like a great time now because I had COVID and needed a little extra help on this week's episode. I do want to thank everyone for their well wishes and support as I kind of had to pause my life for a little bit and get better. Thankfully, I had a relatively mild case, but you may hear some of it lingering in my voice as I'm recording today. In the time from my episode on my old podcast and this episode, there was a long-form podcast on this case done by New Hampshire Public Radio. It is called Bear Brook, and I recommend everyone go listen to it if you like those long-form shows with original interviews. I've not listened to it since it originally came out, but I do remember it being very good, particularly the sound design. So I'll leave the name in the show notes so that you can go listen. The main sources for this episode are documents released by the New Hampshire Department of Justice, as well as multiple news outlets like WMUR and The Union Leader. Also, a major shout out to the blog, oakhillresearch.blogspot.com. They have tons of pictures that really give you an idea of what was happening in this case, and they did their own work investigating it. All sources are linked in the show notes. Typically, I cover cases by starting with day one in the victim's life. You know, so-and-so was born on this day in this place, and sometimes My episodes end up being more biographies than true crime, but this case unfolded very differently because it initially started as multiple Doe cases, and it really is only partly resolved. There are still a lot of questions here, and there were a lot of victims. Some victims have been located and identified, some identified but not located, and one has been located but not identified. So this is far from a linear story, and with the magnitude of how awful this is, it's even hard to explain. As we come up on another person, another victim, we need to think about the family members and friends they left behind, and then we'll start seeing the real impact that this one person had on so many lives. We are going to go ahead and start following the cases as they were investigated. And as they were linked to each other. So that has us starting in November of 1985, which is hunting season in New England. Hunters were walking on a private property adjacent to Bear Brook State Park. Bear Brook is a 10,000 acre park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. According to my trusty Google Maps, it's about 20 minutes from Concord and about 25 minutes from Manchester. One of these hunters noticed that there was a 55-gallon steel drum lying on its side. The top of the barrel had already come off a bit, and it would later be discovered that some curious boys had pried it open a few months earlier. But there was an awful smell when they started to open it, so they just left it. Being kids, they didn't realize what they were smelling. But once it was open, some plastic was sticking out, so the hunter looked in and saw human bones. The hunters called the police and led the responding officer to the barrel, where he confirmed that these were human remains. Not one body, but two wrapped in garbage bags. The location where the barrel was found was not terribly far from a logging path, so it was a relatively easy dumping spot from a vehicle but still concealed with how heavily wooded this area is. That area of the property was otherwise not really used. There was an old camp store nearby, but it had been severely damaged in a fire a few years before the barrel was found. At that point, it was not much more than a shell. The remains had to be sent to Maine for analysis since New Hampshire didn't have the necessary facilities in state at the time. They were able to determine that one body was of a woman between 22 and 33 years of age, with the investigators saying mid-20s was likely. The other was a girl between the ages of 5 and 11. It was determined that they both died of blunt force trauma to the head. It was hard to say how long the bodies had been there, but it was at least several months, but could have been a few years. The investigation had little to go on. The police interviewed people in the area, including the man who owned the property at the time. This was a small town, so surely someone heard something, someone told someone something, someone would have known the victims, but they got nothing. Sketches were made of what the victims possibly looked like in life, and those were released to the media, which generated some tips, but nothing conclusive. Because the investigators suspected the woman and child were possibly mother and daughter just by circumstances of being found together, they looked for missing persons reports for mothers and daughters who went missing together, and found the case of 32-year-old Grace Reap and her five-year-old daughter, Gracie. The two went missing in June of 1978 from Jericho, Vermont, which is about two and a half hours from Allenstown. They were reported missing four days after they were last seen. Grace's husband, Michael, who was Gracie's father, said that Grace took Gracie and left him, leaving behind a note saying that they were not coming back. He reported them missing after Grace's sister called and insisted on knowing where Grace went. The story that Grace took off like that didn't ring true particularly since she had two older children who were at school at the time she left. She wouldn't have left them behind. Michael was a suspect in these disappearances. Dental records, however, excluded Grace and Gracie from being the Allenstown does. As for Grace and Gracie, they have never been found. In October of 1996, Michael learned from the media that the police were searching the family's old property again. Michael was living in Florida at the time. A few weeks after the search was announced, one of Michael's sons reported him missing. He had up and left. In 2006, the state decided to take this case to trial as a no-body homicide case. They charged Michael with one count of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, under the theory that he killed Grace in the heat of the moment and then killed Gracie as she was a witness. The problem was, Michael hadn't been seen in nearly 10 years. It would turn out that Michael had died in Arizona just two months after being reported missing. He had carjacked someone, and as the police were pursuing him, he took his own life. He was himself a John Doe until 2012 when he was identified. Though Grace and Gracie have not been found, it is believed due to Michael's behavior when he learned the property was being searched that their bodies are somewhere on or near that property. But back to the Allenstown case. Aside from Grace and Gracie, there weren't any other missing mother-daughter pairs that fit. So they branched out and looked at individuals. It's always possible that they were not reported missing. So they reached out to schools in the area and throughout New England, asking if there was a girl who was in class one day and then abruptly removed the next. In this time before genetic genealogy, this was how does were identified, and the hope was that someone would come forward, but no one did. As the case grew cold, the victims were buried together in a steel casket and the town had fundraised for the plot and the headstone. The hope was the casket would preserve the bodies should they need to be exhumed at a future date. 14 years later, a detective with the New Hampshire State Police picked up the file. At the time, detectives with the state trooper's office were expected to pick up cold cases that they would work on or look at when they weren't working a current homicide. So this detective was assigned to the Allenstown cases and would take it out and go over it whenever he could. One of the things he did in May of 2000 was drive out to where the barrel was found to look around the property himself. He was getting the basic lay of the land, seeing how far the barrel was from the road from the camp store, and even from a nearby mobile home park. while he was at the site walking around, he noticed that there was another barrel that looked a lot like the first one. It was about a hundred yards away, which is about a football field from the initial barrel inside this second barrel was another horrifying discovery. There were two more bodies, and both of these were children and both were girls. One was determined to be between four and eight years old, and the other between one and three years old. So we're talking little girls. They were also killed by blunt force trauma to the head. And like with the first two victims, there were no corresponding missing persons reports That matched. Investigators had to first determine if this barrel was from the same incident as the first barrel, meaning all four were killed and disposed of at the same time, or was this a possible dumping ground and the bodies were left at separate times by the same killer, but not killed at the same time. After all, the second barrel was not seen at the time the first barrel was found. So was it possible it wasn't even there yet? But the evidence ended up pointing towards all four victims being killed and left in the area at the same time, possibly as early as 1977 and no later than 1984. So why wasn't the second barrel found after they searched the first time? Like I said, the two barrels were about a football field length apart, and if you were on a football field, obviously that's within line of sight, but this is a wooded area. There was a lot of undergrowth and brush and even rocks and boulders and some other trash dumped in the area. It's unfortunate they missed it, but given the terrain and the landscape, you can see how it was concealed. The police took the information from the two additional victims and ran them through every database, but they were also unable to find any missing persons case that matched. They also considered that rather than having a mother-daughter missing pair, they actually had possibly a mother and three daughters, and so they looked for any missing persons cases That matched that. But as you can imagine, a woman and all three of her children going missing at the same time is not very common. The lack of a corresponding missing persons report on any of the four victims, plus signs of poor dental health, led investigators to believe that they may have lived outside of society in some way. It's possible the children were never in school or daycare, or at least not regularly. They may have been transient, not putting down roots in any one town long enough to make friends who would miss them. They were possibly not in contact with family. And of course, the property was more thoroughly searched this time, but no additional clues were found. Another thing investigators often do in cases like this is look at similar crimes from around the country. We saw this in the Sophie Sergei case from a couple months ago and we also saw it two weeks ago in the Lewis-Clark Valley case of Kristen David. By investigating similar cases, if they're dealing with a serial killer, they may be able to identify him or at least link him to more crimes. This case did come back with a similarity. In June 2000, right after the second barrel was found, John Edward Robinson was arrested at his farm in Kansas after two women filed police reports against him. One of the charges was for theft, so they got a search warrant for his property. On his property, they found two women buried in large chemical drums. And then in a storage unit he owned, they found three more, including a mother and daughter all five victims were killed by blunt force trauma to the head, just like the Allenstown Four. But at the time the New Hampshire victims would have been killed, the police were able to confirm that Robinson was in the Kansas City area. And this is pretty well documented by his criminal arrests. He had been arrested for forgery and fraud, and he was also attempting to set up fraudulent shell corporations at the time. They couldn't find any evidence he traveled to New Hampshire in that time frame, and thanks to his inability to stay out of jail, they had a pretty good record of his movements. The methods used to identify the second two Allentown does were similar to the first, except forensics was moving light years ahead of where it was in 1985, and then even more in the two decades after the second barrel was found. So they were able to do a lot with DNA and isotope testing. Of course, they had to exhume the first two victims for this testing, and they got a lot of very good information. The first was DNA profiles that showed that the adult woman, the older child, and the youngest child were all related through mitochondrial DNA. This is maternally inherited. The woman could have been the mother of the girls, their sister, or their maternal aunt. Based on the ages and that they were found together, they were very likely a mother and her two daughters. The middle girl, however, was not related to any of them. Of course, DNA is most useful when you have someone to match it to, so to narrow down where to look, they performed isotope testing. Without getting into too much scientific detail, this testing analyzes hair, teeth, and bones for indications of where a person is from and where they most recently lived. It's not like GPS, it's not going to give you a specific city to look, and it's not perfect. What it looks for are similarities with minerals and whatnot found in those areas. There is a case from Australia that I may cover one day, and that's Carly Pierce-Stevenson and Candalise Pierce. It is a twisted case, but the reason I'm bringing it up right now is that the isotope testing in it was wrong. Before their remains were identified, it was stated that the little girl had lived outside of Australia when we know she never traveled far from Alice Springs, which is nearly smack in the middle of the country. It's like the Kansas City of Australia. The worry in releasing inaccurate isotope testing results is that someone may know something but not come forward. If someone who knew... Candelis had heard that this body was found, but the child lived outside of Australia. They may not have called it in. So it is with that disclaimer that we discuss isotope testing. It was determined that all four victims were from the United States. The three related victims had lived together, but the unrelated Doe had not lived with them her entire life. She had isotope signals that were remarkably different. But they showed that they all had lived in the New England area for up to three months before their deaths. For the three related does, it appeared that they came from a coastal area, perhaps the west coast, but also the east coast north of Virginia, and there were a few parts in the Midwest that were possibilities the unrelated little girl likely spent her life farther from the coast. The upper Midwest was a possibility, as was upstate New York. Some areas in the Southwest, like Nevada, northern Arizona, northern New Mexico, and Colorado are also possibilities. But it appeared she had lived farther inland and farther north in the year prior to her death. She very likely did not join the other victims in life until about six months before her death. So that did narrow some of the areas they could look for corresponding missing persons cases. And they knew that they needed to look farther outside of New England. So that is where the case stood for many years. And we are going to leave it there for a second to travel across the country to California to discuss another case, and it all comes back together in the end. It was several months after the second barrel was found that a woman named Un Sun Jun brought a new boyfriend over to a New Year's Eve party to introduce him to her family. Eunsun's cousin later told NBC News that she took an immediate dislike to the boyfriend, Larry Vanner, and to put it bluntly, he creeped her out. But Unson was in love, having met Larry when she hired the handyman to help with some roof repairs. Unson was a chemist living in Richmond, California at the time, and her cousin described her as a free spirit with an open heart and the highly educated woman who loved to travel the world and create art fell in love with a slightly disheveled, creepy, and often unemployed handyman. They seemed like an odd couple from the outside, but this wouldn't have been entirely surprising. eun was someone who accepted people as they were and got to know them. And from what others have said, Larry was not without the ability to charm people. It was a superficial charm, to be sure, which is something some people accept at face value, but is a red flag for others. Larry had told the family about his self-made wealth, his supposed CIA connections, and how he owned several properties and I'm not entirely sure why this isn't more of a true crime trope. If someone tells you he's in the CIA, has wealth that you see no evidence of, and or owns valuable property that just so happens to exist elsewhere, he's almost surely a grifter. And that's what Eunsun's cousin was seeing. She asked Larry more about his properties, which is a typical get-to-know-you question, but she was also skeptical based on his appearance and his general attitude that he was sitting on a fortune. In that same NBC interview, unsun's cousin said that Larry got angry and told her to never question him again. And this type of interaction absolutely caused tension between unsun and her family. In August 2001, Unsan and Larry had a Star Trek themed backyard wedding ceremony without some of her family invited, like her cousin. Anyone who had expressed concerns about the relationship or about Larry were cut out. The wedding was only ceremonial. The two did not file a marriage license, so it was never recognized by the government. Officially married or not, the relationship started to decline soon after this. Unsan had complained to a friend that Larry was putting off having children, but time was not a luxury they had since Unsan was already in her early 40s. He had seemed interested before they got married, but when she brought it up after, he was no longer on board. She was also getting frustrated that Larry was not working consistently. Eunsun was a very hard worker. She immigrated from Korea, earned a master's degree, always working every step of the way. And now she was married to someone who wasn't interested in getting steady work or in doing much of anything. Though Eun Sun had cut out some people in her life, those who didn't approve of Larry, she did still have some friends she was in regular contact with, like her friend Rose. At some point in May of two thousand two, Rose stopped hearing from Eun Sun. Rose kept calling the house, and Larry had a different excuse for where Eun Sun had gone. First, she was in Virginia visiting her sick mother. Then she had come home for a day, but then she left again to go to Oregon to see to a property they owned. But no, Larry had no way for Rose to get in contact with Unsan. Eventually, Rose was frustrated by the lack of contact and warned Larry that she was going to call the police if she did not hear from Unsan. And true to her word, when Larry wouldn't or couldn't, Put her in contact with Unsan, she went to the police. Honestly, with what we will learn of Larry in a minute, I'm surprised he did not run when he heard the police might be contacted. He stuck around living in Unsan's house, so he was easy enough for the police to find. They brought Larry down to the station to clear up the question of where Unsan really was. And Larry seemed polite enough on the surface, but he was hesitant to talk about himself or Unsan very much. He acted like it was a matter of privacy. He even talked about how gossip had its place, but that he was not going to talk about himself or Unsan. Now, when the police are asking you where your girlfriend wife is, they are not sitting around asking you to gossip, And acting like the police were just sitting there waiting for him to spill the tea is bizarre. But that wasn't the only odd thing he did. He also started rambling about how much people get paid for working fires in the woods. And then he said something about how there's no defense against the truth, but it's hard to figure out what the truth is. You have one side, the other side, and something down the middle which may very well be true, but they were literally asking him where his wife was, which has an objective truth. There is nothing subjective or open to point of view about someone's physical location, unless we're getting metaphysical, and believe me when I tell you these investigators had no interest in anything outside of perceived reality. They eventually got him to give them the she's in Oregon looking at our property line, but then he later said, okay, she is in Oregon, but she was seeking mental health treatment. He was afraid if the police called her and started investigating, it would negatively impact her treatment. He seemed hesitant to give them any more specific information, like where she was getting this treatment, the doctor's name, the phone number, any of that but eventually Larry agreed to call the psychiatrist himself. He called, dialing the number from memory, but then hung up without speaking to anyone. Since he dialed this number in full view of the interview room cameras, the police got the number by watching the recording. They called it themselves, and it did go to a psychiatrist. But the psychiatrist had no one in his care matching Unsun's description. As I said, Larry was telling these rambling, pointless stories during this interview, and the investigators didn't necessarily discourage it because they were hoping he would give more information about himself or Unsun through this. So they would ask him some questions back, ones that were specifically about himself, like, so that's an interesting accent, where are you from? And Larry would dodge, sometimes aggressively, any of these questions about himself. And the reason the police were so interested in information on Larry is because Larry Vanner was not showing up in their database. It showed no state ID, no driver's license, no criminal record, no property, nothing. So they eventually asked Larry if he was willing to be fingerprinted, and he said yes. The police got a hit on the fingerprints pretty quickly. This is the age of computers, and Larry Vanner was not Larry Vanner, but rather Curtis Mayo Kimball, a man who was wanted for a 1990 parole violation. The charge had to do with a conviction for the desertion of a young child who had been believed to be his daughter. Because of this parole violation, they were able to hold him, and they also executed a search warrant on Unson's home where he had been living, and had been using her money and credit cards after she had last been heard from. The investigators told the TV show 2020 that one of the first things that struck them when entering the home was that there were none of Unson's day-to-day items in the house all of her clothes, shoes, toiletries, things like that were gone. Except for some pictures on the fridge and some incomplete pottery pieces in the garage, there was little sign of her. While searching in that garage, they saw that there was a dirt floor crawl space, and it was covered with a large mound of cat litter. There appeared to be blood spatter around, that mound, and crime scene investigators were called in. They came in, they removed the cat litter carefully, which was about 250 pounds total, and in it, they found Unsan's partially dismembered body. She had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. So Larry, or rather Curtis Kimball at this point, was then charged with murder. And while he was locked up pending trial, more information on the child desertion charge was dug up. Most of what has been made public about this was in a Boston Globe article from 2017 called Finding Lisa, which is a very touching and sensitive piece covering a very difficult story. It is linked in the sources if you want to read it in full. Curtis, who was going by Gordon Jensen in 1986, was living in an RV park in Scotts Valley, California. He had been in California since at least 1984, and we know that through employment records since he worked as an electrician. While living at the RV park, Curtis had a little girl with him who looked to be four or five years old. Residents at the park were concerned about her, and she is called Lisa in the reporting. Lisa's clothing was all well-worn. It was too small for her. She was often hungry, not just for food, but for attention. She also didn't have much by way of toys or puzzles or books. But what Curtis did have was a sob story. He would reportedly cry when he talked about how his wife died when Lisa was a baby. She died in a robbery or of cancer or a car accident, depending On who he was talking to. And Curtis was doing his best as an impoverished single father. Lisa was a sweet little girl who often played with the grandson of a woman at the park named Catherine. Lisa even started calling her grandma. Catherine told the Boston Globe that she mentioned to Curtis, who she knew as Gordon, that she would love a granddaughter like Lisa and that her daughter and son in law were having trouble having a child. This wasn't something she just mentioned by chance. She was planting the seed that maybe Lisa should go live with her daughter, since Curtis pretty regularly complained about how hard it was to take care of her. Curtis came back a few days after this conversation and asked if the daughter and son-in-law would be open to taking Lisa in. The plan was they would do a two- to three-week trial in June of 1986. After that, if the family wanted to keep Lisa, then they would proceed with the adoption. The family fell in love with her in those few weeks and went back to her father to get the custody paperwork started. But at that point, they couldn't find him. Curtis, Gordon, Larry, whatever you want to call him, was gone. They weren't sure what to do legally at that point, but they continued to care for Lisa until they saw signs that she had been abused by the man they believed was her father. So they called the police. Lisa disclosed the abuse to the police and also talked about having siblings who died on a camping trip. But she couldn't give more information about that or about her mother, and there were a lot of questions here. So Lisa was taken into protective custody. Having figured out that Gordon Jensen was a fake name, the police lifted Prince from the trailer that he had been living in. Those prints came back to Curtis Kimball. He had previously been arrested for driving drunk with Lisa in the car. He had bailed out of jail in that case and immediately disappeared, so he was also wanted in that case. It would be two years after deserting Lisa that Curtis was seen again. He was caught driving a stolen car in California, a car that he had stolen from someone he knew in Idaho, and he again gave an alias. This time he was Gerald Mockerman. But he was eventually identified yet again as Curtis Kimball and arrested for child abuse and desertion. He managed to strike a plea deal where he pleaded guilty on the child desertion case in exchange for the prosecution dropping the child molestation charges. The prosecutors agreed to this to spare Lisa from reliving the trauma at trial. By this point, years later, she had been placed in an adoptive home who was prepared to handle her needs, and she was recovering. Curtis was sentenced to four years, but he was released after 19 months, and he took off immediately, which violated his parole. He wouldn't surface again for 12 years when the police knocked on his door in 2002 to ask where his wife Unsan was. So at this point, let's pause and do a little recap. Curtis Kimball had abandoned a girl believed to be his daughter when he was using one name, and he was charged with murdering his wife using another name. But his fingerprints connected him to both cases. And this was the beginning of the unraveling of the many aliases of Curtis Kimball, because Curtis Kimball wasn't his name either, but it would take a while for that to be confirmed. The investigators in Unson's case, particularly one detective, Roxanne Grunheide, had already suspected Curtis Kimball was an alias. The name only went back a couple of years in records and databases. The investigators wanted to find out who he really was because they suspected Unsun was not his first murder victim. The murder and the cover-up was too clean to be done by an inexperienced killer. Not to mention, he calmly lived in a house knowing a body was there. That doesn't sound like someone who hasn't done this before. Detective Grunhide wanted to keep digging, but Curtis was not eager for this investigation into his life. Against the advice of counsel, he abruptly pleaded no contest to second-degree murder at a pre-trial hearing that was held just months after his arrest. He had to have realized that they were going to keep investigating for the trial. This plea was not part of a plea deal. The prosecutor did not expect this plea. The judge didn't know it was coming. But he pled guilty voluntarily, so the judge accepted it, and he was then sentenced to 15 years to life and sent off to state prison. But Roxanne Grunheide was not going to let him get off that easily. She knew there was more to this, so she kept digging. And she's a hero in this story 100%. This is investigative policing at its best. She knew there was more to this, and she went for it even though with the guilty plea, it was technically case closed. But not for Detective Grunhine. She realized that where you needed to start, the earliest point on the timeline they knew, was Lisa, the girl he had abandoned. Was she his daughter? Was she kidnapped? Either way, who was her mother and where was she? When Curtis was asked about Lisa, he pretended he didn't know what they were talking about. So he was not any help. But they didn't need his help because they had his DNA. And Lisa, an adult at that point, wanted to know more about her past. So in 2003, a paternity test proved that Curtis was not her father. So they began investigating Lisa as a victim of kidnapping and began looking for missing persons cases that would match what they knew about her. This had not been successful by 2010 when Curtis Kimball, as he was known at the time, died in prison, taking any answers with him. Not that he was going to give those answers up even if he lived another hundred years. In 2014, Lisa heard about genealogy DNA websites like Ancestry.com, and she reached out suggesting they use that to try to figure out where she came from. This would be one of the first times genetic genealogy, also called forensic genealogy, was used in a criminal investigation. Lisa submitted her DNA and got a bunch of hits to Third and Fourth Cousins, which, if any of you have used those websites, you know that's very common, and it doesn't narrow things down very much. But with the help of genetic genealogist Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, they were able to find a match on the East Coast. It was a distant match, and the shared ancestor had something like 18 children. So it took some serious detective work to follow all of those branches to see where they went. It's one of the things that really fascinates me about genetic genealogy, because you have the science in the genetics, but then you also have the investigative angle with the genealogy. Birth records, marriage records, census records, all of those have to be pulled and poured over. It's not usually a matter of uploading your DNA and getting an immediate hit, particularly back in 2014, when not as many people were on those websites. Eventually, they narrowed down the area where Lisa was from to New Hampshire. And by isolating the state, particularly one with a relatively small population, it was a game changer. An obituary for a woman named Georgette Bowden was found, and Georgette was a relative of Lisa somehow. The obituary listed a single child, Denise. In 2016, they determined that Denise Bowden was Lisa's birth mother by running a DNA test on Denise's father that showed he was Lisa's grandfather. He told the authorities that Denise had a baby named Dawn, born in 1981 but he hadn't seen Don or Denise since Don was an infant. So the mystery of who Lisa was, was answered. But now we have another question. Where was Denise Bowden? So let's back up again to the 1980s. It's 1981, Denise Bowden was living in Manchester, New Hampshire, where she met a man named Bob Evans. On Thanksgiving of 1981, Denise, Bob, and Denise's infant daughter, who was Lisa but called Dawn at the time, went to a family dinner. About a week later on December 1st, Denise's father dropped by their apartment for a visit and to talk about holiday plans for Christmas. He found that they were gone. Due to some financial issues Bob and Denise had been having, they did mention that they were likely going to move and start over elsewhere, but the family certainly didn't expect her to do it without telling them. But that is what they assumed happened, and they never heard from Denise again. The police showed Denise's father a mugshot of the man going by Gordon Jensen at the time he abandoned Lisa, who we know is Curtis Kimball, and he confirmed that man was the man he met as Bob Evans. Gordon Jensen, Larry Vanner, Bob Evans, Curtis Kimball, all the same guy. At a press conference many years later, the investigators did make a comment about family dynamics being a little different in the situation as an explanation for why no one reported Denise and Don missing after the years passed without contact. But I don't think this is necessarily uncommon, particularly in the 70s and 80s and probably the 90s and probably even today. If you have a family member you think moved away because they wanted to, even if you want to find them, even if you want contact, you don't call the police over it. You don't call the police and say, I want to talk to my daughter, but she moved away. So Denise was never reported missing until... She was connected to Lisa, and it was discovered that she didn't just move away, that she was actually missing. It is not clear if Denise made it to California with Bob and her daughter because no one saw her there. So it's this piece of the puzzle that connected Curtis Kimball from California to Bob Evans in New Hampshire. And not just to the state of New Hampshire, but to Manchester, which is about 25 minutes from Bear Brook. And he was there in the time frame the barrels would have been dumped. And now that they had the name Bob Evans, they also learned that he had ties to the property where the barrels were found. The property owner worked at the local mill where Bob also worked as an electrician. And Bob had done some electrical work at that old camp store right near the barrels. So the first thought was that Denise Bowden was the oldest Jane Doe from Bearbrook. But that didn't entirely make sense because as far as anyone knew, Denise only had Lisa. She didn't have an older child and a younger child. The DNA did rule out Denise as being the older Jane Doe and showed that she and Lisa were not related to any of them. But Bob's DNA? that was a match to the middle child, the one who's not related to the others. That child was his daughter. It first looked like they were going to tie Curtis Kimball, Bob Evans to the Bearbrook victims through Denise Bowden, but it turned out it was his own daughter that tied him to this horrendous crime. So it's a good time to recap again. We're just going to use the name Bob Evans at this point because that is the earliest identity at this point they had for this man. Bob Evans killed his wife, Unson. He likely killed his girlfriend, Denise Bowden, and kidnapped her child. He was related to one of the children in the barrels, and it stands to reason he killed them all. That brings us to six victims. But we have to consider there was a seventh his daughter's mother. Where was she? Who was she? Based on what happened to Denise Bowden, the woman in the barrel, and Oon's son, I think we can say that she was very likely another victim of the man known as Bob Evans, who was clearly a serial killer and an unusual one at that. He seemed to only kill people he knew and had a connection to. Not just a connection, even, people he lived with for upwards of a year or more. After killing them, he would disappear and reappear under a new identity until Un Sun and that's when he got caught. So again, we have more information, but we have more questions. And the answer seemed to lie with Bob Evans, who died under the name Curtis Kimball years before all of this was being discovered. And I'm sure it's not a surprise that the paper trail on the man calling himself Bob Evans only went back a few years, where he seemingly materialized out of nowhere in Manchester, New Hampshire, in the late 1970s. Knowing Bob Evans also was not his real name and needing the public's help in uncovering who he really was and who his victims were, a large press conference was held in early 2017. There had been other press conferences, mostly attended by local media, but this one in 2017 is where I think a lot of us outside of New Hampshire and certainly outside of New England first learned about this case. I covered the information about a year later on my old podcast. At this press conference, the investigators laid out all of the information they had that may lead to the identities of the victim's, or of Bob Evans. They put out the information Evans had slowly released about himself over the years, though they were sure most of it probably wasn't true. But there may have been hints of the truth woven in there that would lead to his identity. One source of information was an autobiography that he began writing at some point in 1986, In that autobiography, he claimed he was raised by Norwegian-American parents who abused him and refused to allow him to attend school. He said he had five older siblings and that he joined the military before moving to Canada, which is where he met his wife, Denise Laporte. They had one child together, a daughter named Virginia. Denise died, according to him, in 1983. It's very possible that this autobiography was for his own use as he figured out a fake backstory for himself, though, like I said, he may have brought in elements of the truth, like using Denise's first name as the name for his deceased wife. So does that mean possibly the little girl he killed was named Virginia? That's certainly a lead. The dates of birth that Bob gave for his various identities spanned several years, anywhere from 1936 to 1952, though based on his appearance at the time of his death, they estimated he was born in the 1940s. They believed his story of being in the military was true and that he was likely in the Navy. Based on his arrests over the years, they also knew he had an alcohol addiction. They put out every picture and mugshot they had of him over the years. And it was Dr. Barbara Ray Venter who was still on this case. After having helped identify Lisa, she was working on Bob Evans' family tree. And within eight months of the release of his identity to the public, he was proven to be Terry Peter Rasmussen. That was his original identity, and they matched him through DNA with one of his living children. So we're going to back up yet again, and we're going to get an idea of who Terry Rasmussen was before he appeared as Bob Curtis Gordon Larry. Rasmussen was born in Colorado on December 23, 1943, and he moved to Arizona in 1958. He dropped out of school during his second year of high school and enlisted in the Navy pretty much as soon as he turned 18. While there, he worked as an electrician. This training was what would help him find work over the years under his various identities. He left the Navy six years later and moved to Hawaii in 1967. His parents had already relocated there, and he was working for them in their store. In the summer of 1968, Rasmussen married, and the next year, they moved back to Arizona, where he found work again as an electrician. Rasmussen and his wife would go on to have four children together. They had twins who were born in Arizona. Then they moved to California, where his son and youngest daughter were born. In 1972, Rasmussen and his wife separated, But they reconciled long enough for the family to move back to Arizona together. But in 1975, his wife took the kids and left for good shortly after Rasmussen was arrested for assault. One of his daughters has said that he was abusive for the short time he was in their lives. According to the New Hampshire Department of Justice timeline, which is where this information comes from. At the end of December 1975 or 1976, it was around Christmas time, Rasmussen suddenly showed up at the house where his wife and children were living. All of the children were under the age of seven. He told them he was living in Texas at the time and he had a woman with him who they didn't know, but they were under the impression that she was his girlfriend. It doesn't sound like he ever gave them. Her name, but if he did, they certainly didn't remember it all these years later. In 1978, Rasmussen contacted a friend back in Arizona to ask for money. He said he was working in Texas and he is on record as working for a company there. A few months later, the divorce from his wife was granted, but there is no record of where he was at the time, according to the New Hampshire DOJ. The next time Rasmussen appeared on the record, it was as Bob Evans in the late 1970s working at a mill in New Hampshire. And as Bob Evans, he did leave a few breadcrumbs. The one thing this guy did really well was get arrested. Much of what the authorities know about where he was and what identity he was using is because of his arrest record. In February, May, and October of 1980, as Bob Evans, Rasmussen was arrested in Manchester for passing a bad check, theft of services, and then diverting an electric current. With the first two arrests, he listed his wife as a woman named Elizabeth. On the last arrest, he didn't write down any name for his spouse. Investigators also found that an Elizabeth Evans signed a certified letter in January 1980 at Bob Evans' address. So we do know she really did exist. She wasn't just a name on the paperwork. And she lived with him in New Hampshire for a little while at least. This was before he met Denise Bowden. So Elizabeth Evans was a big lead on who the woman in the barrel may have been. Except, of course, we know Evans was an alias and there are a lot of women named Elizabeth out there. It was in late 1981 that Denise Bowden and her baby disappeared, and then Rasmussen showed up with the child, but not Denise, in 1984 as Curtis Kimball. So that is the backstory on Terry Rasmussen and how he became, eventually, Curtis Kimball. And then, after the public had this huge dump of information on them, things seemed to go quiet. The case seemed to be almost paused in the public eye. But, of course, we know this investigation was more active than ever. Forensic genealogy had solved two of the mysteries here, and really, it was going to solve some more. There was a lot of online chatter during this time in forums and on social media that I follow. About how they were getting very close to a big break. And then it was announced in 2019 that that big break had come. Three of the Allenstown Four had been identified. The identification came from two places at nearly the exact same time, which helped verify how solid of a lead this was. There was a research librarian named Rebecca Heath who was very invested in the case. The way some of us get invested in cases. And she had been online looking at postings from families looking for other family members they lost contact with. Because, like we mentioned with Denise Bowden, you don't report someone missing when you think they left on their own, but years later with the internet, maybe you go looking for them on social media or in forums. And that's exactly what was happening here. Rebecca found a posting from a family member looking for someone named Sarah McWaters, who was an infant the last time she was seen in the custody of her mother, Marlise Honeychurch, who also had an older daughter named Marie Vaughn. The timeline and the fact that these were three females in the right age ranges as the related does from Bear Brook immediately caught Rebecca's eye. She reached out to the person who made the post and learned that Marlise had once married or was dating a man with the last name Rasmussen. Rebecca, who had just recently listened to the NHPR podcast Bearbrook, called the tip in. On the other side working the case, we still have genetic genealogist Barbara Ray Venter. She had helped identify Lisa, She had figured out who Curtis Kimball really was, and now she is working on the case of the Jane Doe's. She had already narrowed down the older daughter Marie Vaughn's line, so when the tip came in, the rest just fell into place. The woman in the barrel was Marlise Honeychurch. The older girl was her daughter Marie, and the youngest, her daughter Sarah. Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch was born in Connecticut in 1954. Her father had custody after her parents' divorce, but Marlise really began rebelling as a teen. At 15, she moved to California to live with her mother after she was getting in trouble for running away. In 1971, Marlise and her husband had a daughter they named Marie, and Marlise was not quite 18 at the time. For about two years, the little family lived back east in Connecticut and Massachusetts before Marlise and her husband separated. Her husband took Marie and moved back to California. Marlise arrived shortly after and took Marie to live with her, and when they divorced, Marlise was given custody. In December 1977, when Marie was six, Marlise gave birth to her second child, Sarah McWaters. Within a year, Marlise and Sarah's father separated. In 1978, Sarah's father was granted custody, but for reasons that are not clear, Sarah was living with Marlise within months of this custody ruling. In November of 1978, Marlise and the girls went to Thanksgiving dinner, and Marlise introduced them to her new boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen. Marlise's children were nearly seven and nearly one. Rasmussen did not have a child with him, though we know that his child, the middle one left in the barrel, would have been born at this point because she was older than Sarah. The isotope testing also showed she likely did not live with Marlise and her girls just yet, and it is unknown where she was at this time. At this Thanksgiving dinner, Marlise and her mother got into an argument and Marlise stormed off with the girls and her new boyfriend. Marlise's siblings are not sure what the argument was about all these years later. They told 2020 that their mother was a very opinionated woman who would let you know how she felt about things and it's very possible she said something about Terry Rasmussen or the relationship or their age difference that Marlies didn't like. There is a photograph that indicates there may have been some contact with Marie for her December birthday a month later with some family members, but that would be the last contact they would have. Bob Evans then appeared in 1979 in Manchester, New Hampshire, and in early 1980, his wife, named Elizabeth, which was Marlise's middle name, signed that piece of certified mail. And at some point, his daughter had come to live with them. A year and a half later, Bob Evans was dating Denise Bowden, and in an odd coincidence, she was also last seen with her child on Thanksgiving. So we have Marlise probably being the Elizabeth Evans signing the certified mail in January 1980 and then being gone by Thanksgiving 1981 when Rasmussen was seen with Denise. It seems like Marlise, Marie, Sarah, and Rasmussen's daughter were killed between those two points in the timeline. That's not definitive, but it seems circumstantially likely. And though Marlise, Marie, and Sarah had not been officially reported missing, the families were looking for them over the years and really amped up the search when the internet became widely available and it was much easier to look for people. The identity of Rasmussen's daughter and her mother remains unknown. Based on what we know, the little girl was likely born between 1975 and 1977. So far, genetic genealogy has narrowed them in on the Pearl River County, Mississippi area, which borders Louisiana. And if we're talking about the broader region, this fits because Rasmussen was in Texas at the time this little girl would have been born, working near Corpus Christi and then in Houston. For all we know, her mother may have even been the woman his children met when he came to see them for Christmas. The investigators have tied the little girl to these distant relatives in Mississippi, but it is going to take a lot more work or a much closer match to identify her. For one thing, the two possible direct ancestors are both male. And as we know, the father on the birth certificate might not really be the father, which has held up identification in a few cases we've covered, like the El Dorado Jane Doe and also the killer of Yara Gambriasio. I covered that case back in October 2019, if you want to go check it out. It is an extraordinary case of forensic genealogy leading to a killer. So that's one issue. But the other issue we have here is that the match was to really distant relatives, and the two possible direct ancestors were both born in the 1800s. And like a lot of people in the 1800s tended to do, they had several children their children had children, and so on. That's a lot of people to work through. The DNA did show that the little girl was primarily Caucasian, but did have small amounts of Native American, Asian, and Black ancestry. So far, she or her potential mother have not been found in missing persons reports. But except for Unsun, none of Rasmussen's victims were reported missing. He was good at putting wedges between women and their families. He did it with Marlise and her mother, and then he did it with eun and her family. It was because of her friend that she was reported missing. So it's possible he did the same thing to his daughter's mother and her family, and they may believe they're still staying away on purpose. For all we know, they're on forums and Facebook right now looking for them. So investigators are hoping they can narrow down on the little girl's mother, which would lead to birth records and identity. They have been spreading the information down in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Was there a woman around in the mid-1970s who then dropped out of touch? Maybe she was dating a guy named Terry Rasmussen. He almost always worked as an electrician or general handyman, and he was known for being highly intelligent. While some people found him charming, others found that superficial charm to be creepy and off-putting. Maybe someone would remember him because of his unusual light blue eyes. Who knows what will jar someone's memory? And maybe this woman had a little girl born in the mid to late 1970s. She would have had slightly wavy light brown hair and a slight overbite. And one day they left town and no one heard from them again. If you know anything, you can call Nick Mick at 1-800-THE-LOST or the New Hampshire State Police at 1-603-223-3856. And if you know anything about the disappearance of Denise Bowden, you can call the Manchester Police at 603-668-8711. These numbers will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.